Well, thank you for reading that and reading it so beautifully. Those words cut right into your soul, do they not? Right into your very soul. Now, my subject for today is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Glimpses into eternity. Wow, that's a powerful ask, isn't it, to talk about that. I'm going to begin 40 years ago when I frequently conducted worship in a retirement facility in Sydney. And I kind of endeared myself to these people. They were absolutely beautiful people. And they'd try their very best to stay awake for 10 minutes for a sermon. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't succeed very well. So what I did, I got into the act of finding stories that, like Jesus, had stories And I thought, well, Jesus is the boss, so I'll try and do what he did and find stories that convey my message. And this dear lady had treasured all of her life in a box in her room. She treasured, from being a teenager, things that she'd snipped out of Christian publications. And she'd got a ready recipient in me, and she'd pass it on to me, and What she passed on to me, I'm going to share with you today. One thing in particular was from a Christian magazine in 1923. And it describes something that happened to an English lady called Rose Pledger. And Rose lived with her fisherman husband in a little fishing village off England's south coast. The magazine editor obviously thought this story had great significance because it was a marvellous analogy of the Christian life. And I suspect you'll agree with me when I've shared it, so away I go. It was set in the 1920s, and the pledgers and their fellow villagers witnessed a natural phenomena, a climatic aberration as a result of which Rose got to see something she never in her life expected to see. Something about which she'd only ever heard by hearsay from the fishermen that were talking. Something that was beyond her normal horizon. She wanted to, to see this thing very, very badly. There was only one problem. In the way was the English Channel. It was on the other side of the English Channel. You couldn't see it from her side of the English Channel. And so she used to look out to where the grey sky and the grey sea met in greyness. Those of you that have been to England know all about this. (laughs) She'd look out at the greyness and she'd think, "If if only somehow it could clear and I could see what was out there, what was out there. Now, the English Channel is, of course, a seaway. It's a seaway that connects the Atlantic Ocean with the North Sea. And it came into being only 10,000 years ago, after the last Ice Age, when the ice melted and England was then conjoined to France. It was part of the the landmass, the contiguous Europe. The Channel broke through as the waters rose, and there was the English Channel. 
and there was also the North Sea, and there was also the Irish Sea, and so England, or Great Britain, came into being as separate from the rest of Europe. Sea levels rose, and these waters have functioned for Britain like the moat of a medieval castle, keeping out the baddies, isolating the British Isles, forming a barrier to any would-be invader. William Shakespeare described his homeland as this sceptred isle, this fortress built by nature for herself. Not flowery, but it describes his concept of this series of islands surrounded by water. Now the channel gets very rough. It's formerly a land bridge. It's similar to the land bridge that you have between Alaska and Siberia. And wherever you have a land bridge, you have things that make for very, very rough water because it's quite shallow by comparison. And if you have any doubts about it, go ask the Alaskan fishermen and they can attest how rough that seaway gets to the north, the Bering Strait. And so, by the way, can the Sandersons. We've been on the Bering Strait in hurricane force winds. And I've got to tell you, it knows how to blow. Back to the pledges. Poor Rose was semi-crippled with arthritis. And it's a malady destructive to the quality of life. And I can personally attest to that. And though she was only able to, able to hobble a bit short distances, she kept her cottage spick and span. She never complained, she just got on with her life, as I tried to do. The Pledgers had had a family. Girl had married a soldier and moved away. Boy had joined the Navy and was serving in some outpost. So the Pledgers were on their own. The Pledgers loved each other. But it was one of those dull, dumb, uncommunicative loves that happened and that in particular was the way of things in those hard times that people didn't express their love, they didn't say what they felt, they just got on with their lives. Rose had never travelled very far but she'd listened to the fishermen talk about a land out there along the shores of which they used to fish and the land they talked about was France, France. And they talked about people who spoke a different language, people who wore different clothes, ate different food. Why the even ate frogs? Escargot, they call them, frogs. Well, she'd heard all this, and she thought, if only, if only I could see it, if only I could see that land, my heart would be stilled and I would feel satisfied. Now custom was in that village, the women never got into the boats. The women never went to see off their men. And the same custom, when I was a fisherman fishing out of the port of Hull in England, the same custom prevailed. No women ever stepped foot on the trawler and never came to see us off, though we went to sea for three weeks. It wasn't that they loved their menfolk any less than other women, it was just that was it. Somehow or other they were superstitious and they felt it was going to bring bad luck. I mean, it's all bosh, I know, but that's, uh, 
<laughs> that's the way that they used to think. Then one day, Rosa's dream came true. Now, isn't that good news? Now, that particular day, the pledges woke up and there were storm clouds gathering. Fishing boats had stayed in port. Villagers had battened down their cottages. Luke had grunted something at breakfast about, oh, something big going to happen today. And he went out to discuss it with his neighbours. And soon he dashed back inside, displaying an excitement that she hadn't seen in him for years. She hadn't seen it for years. Come. Come, he said. I'm going to show you something that you've never seen and will never see again. He gathered her up in his strong fisherman's arms and he carried her up the hill to the churchyard. And in the churchyard, all the villagers were there and they were pointing. They were pointing out to say, they were saying, look, 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 look. It was like a mirage. As if projected on a screen was the coast of France. And the fishermen uh, explaining to their wives, their families, look, 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 and telling them all about what they're looking at. You might think that is impossible. But I've got to tell you that when I was a kid in Hull, we lived on the north bank of the River Humber. And looking across at the south bank, once in my life, suddenly what formerly had been just something out there was so clear like it was on a screen. And people had come from all over the city to look at this. And then as quickly as it came, it was gone. And so it was for the pledges. It was gone. And again, as a commercial fisherman off the coast of Iceland, I've been looking across at the Icelandic coast and it's been a distance and then some kind of phenomena has occurred and you're, you're suddenly seeing as if you're, you're right up close or you had powerful binoculars. For the pledges, quickly, it was all over. 20 minutes and then the rain came lashing down. The wind got up and they were looking only at black clouds and at sweeping rain. Rose was wet through, soaked to, her, soaked to her skin. By the time Luke had carried her back home, but she was ecstatic. She had seen something beyond herself. She'd seen something that she knew was out there. She'd seen it. She'd seen it. She'd seen it. Yes, she hadn't got to the land beyond the horizon, the French shore. She'd not met his people, heard them speak foreign language, watched them eat frogs. She'd simply been privileged to catch a glimpse, and that had raised her up. Now, what a glorious analogy this is of the Christian life. We have God moments, don't we? We have glimpses of eternity. We have times when we feel uplifted, when we feel drawn closer and closer and closer to Almighty God. It's these experiences that give us the confidence to face that which 
we cannot see, that which is the unknown, that which is out there. Yet we can't see it. That house with many dwelling places promised by Jesus, that kind of thing. I'm talking about those near God experiences the times when we feel the divine presence lifting, elevating, guiding, and sometimes giving us a great big kick, chiding us. The spiritual journey, it has its peaks and it has its troughs. It has its times when God feels close, and it has its times when God feels far away. But we have read in our gospel today the promise that we who follow Jesus will at life's end follow where he has gone to the place that he has prepared for us and you know we preachers during worship and I've been a preacher for 54 years and we hope somehow that when we're when we're conducting worship that people will get these glimpses of the eternal these glimpses that will carry them through the bad times I always say this when I am conducting worship, I'm like a petrol station attendant, dispensing fuel, fuel for the journey, fuel to help people go up. And when people come to, the, to, to, the, to church to worship, I always regard them as coming to have their reservoir of spiritual experience topped up, like we drive into a service station and get gas for the car. And as I go about my business, as I go about doing everyday things, there are things come into my mind from that reservoir of accumulated experience, words of hymns. You know, there's a favorite Methodist hymn, and the, you got close to it today, actually, and the Methodist hymn has these words. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure whilst the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, anchored firm and deep in the Saviour's love. That pops into my mind. And there's another which we're going to sing later. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. All I have needed your hand has provided. And the most important promise of all, as you have been, you forever will be. Yes, indeed. That particular hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in Sydney they call that Ian Sanderson's signature tune because I have it nearly every service because I consider the promises contained in that the promises that we all should have. And there's another one that pops out of my mind in bad times when I'm really doing it tough. And it's one you know, I'm sure. O oh, love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depth its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain. And it goes on and on and on as it relates to a man feeling awful, but God reaching out to him. Yes. And there's one from by Methodist days that I love when things are going right. Try this one. Lord, we thank thee for the pleasure 
that a happy lifetime gives, the inestimable treasure of a soul that ever lives, mine that looks before and after, lifting eyes to things above, human tears and human laughter, and the depth of human love. Isn't that beautiful? We don't even sing that one anymore. It sang to the same tune as what a friend we have in Jesus, by the way. And then there are the words of scripture. Or words from sermons heard. You know, I regard myself privileged to regularly worship here in the chapel, where I hear excellent sermons. I'm sorry today that probably an you know, <laughs> exception to that, but excellent sermons from Robert and Charla. And I think God can use a preacher's words, words of scripture, words of hymns, prayers, all sorts of things to draw us closer and top up our reservoir and our spiritual fuel tanks. And as I get older, it's apparent there are a lot of good people in the world, many more good people than bad people, and I increasingly value my interaction with those good people, my beloved wife and friends, friends and neighbours, the smiles and the greetings exchanged here in Snowmass, just walking across Labrador Lane and meeting nice people with nice dogs that don't bark at you. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Life is good. And in the Sydney suburb I call home, I have a church family and I have a wonderful church family here and thank you so much for being my church family here. Tomorrow I return to Sydney. Yep, there are bad things happening in the world, but oh, there's a lot of good. And let us resolve that with God's help, we'll be part of the good stuff so our living won't be in vain. I'm going to share a couple of bits with you. Okay, I walk with a cane. Now was an aspen. And I was crossing Mill Street, where that crossing is, near the, near the shops. And I just had surgery, which left me walking like Charlie Chaplin. Couldn't walk very far. So I'm doing my Charlie Chaplin walking across the road. There's a town drunk sitting on a bench. He looked at me, and he took a swig from something in a brown paper bag. Bottle in a brown paper bag. And he put it down and he said, you can do it, old timer. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it, old timer. As I'm walking across the road. Yeah, it made my day. It made my day. And we, Brenda and I laugh about that often. You can do it, old timer. And there was another time I preached in a Sydney church on a Sunday morning. And Sunday afternoon, I had to go to Christchurch, New Zealand. Three hours fight. And all sorts of bad things were happening in the world at that time. Bad, bad things. So here was I about to, to fly off. And I'm sitting there in, a, in my plane seat, and a uh, Down syndrome boy, well, boy, a young man about 30, came and sat next to me. And I thought, oh, well, here goes my chance of, you know, getting next Sunday's sermon done. So I tried to engage him in conversation. But as the plane took off, this poor guy, he went. Really, he was gone. Poor, poor guy. 
And so, he was so agitated, Qantas flight attendant immediately, I didn't know what to do, twigged on. She came and brought some coloring in books, sat next to him, and they colored in together. I thought, how beautiful, how empathetic, how wonderful that this woman knew exactly what to do for a very, very uh, agitated boy. Yeah, it was gorgeous. So yes, life is good. So the next time I preached, I had only one thing to say, to talk about that story and the amount. So I finish now. Talking of God moments, glimpses of eternity, I'm going to leave you with a thought for Easter. You know, the words of that song, fix your eyes on the man on the cross so the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't think about Easter now as I once did as thinking about atonement and all that kind of stuff. When I think about Easter now, I think about that man on the cross. And there, there was Almighty God saying to the world, you can mock me, you can do what you like to me, you can flog me, you can stick a crown of thorns on my head, you can do whatever you like to me, but you aren't going to stop me loving you. To me, that was the ultimate demonstration of God's love for human, the human race. And that is what I implore you to think about during this Easter, because that's what I'll be thinking about about him who was the world made flesh. Now, I'm going to the word made flesh. I've got to finish where I started with Rose Pledger. The lady who longed to see what was beyond her usual horizon and finally glimpsed what she wanted to see. May all of us get glimpses. May all of us search out experiences so that we may get glimpses of what lies beyond our horizon, beyond our visions, beyond what we can touch and smell, beyond all of those things, that we may, may walk closer with God. My friends, I am about to leave Snow Mass. My prayer for all of you, God be with you till we meet again. Amen.